Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. About two hours south of Atlanta is Pasoquan, an art compound that CNN named one of the 16 most intriguing things to see and do in the entire United States. Later this hour, we'll hear about the seven-acre display that is a Georgia treasure and well worth the drive if you are looking for an art-themed day trip from Atlanta. Plus, the next installment in our local series, Film Crew Files, today featuring director of photography Alexis Jackson. First... The overwhelming number of fatal police shootings among black people in America is staggering. Renowned contemporary photographer Carrie Mae Weems asks viewers to witness black humanity with clarity and conscience in her work. Her recent work, The Usual Suspects, is on view at the Georgia Museum of Art through August 7th. The images of black Americans bring into question stereotypes that associate blackness with criminality. Shania L. Harris is the Georgia Museum curator of African American and African diasporic art, she joins me now via Zoom. Shania, welcome back to City Lights. Uh, thank you, Lois, for having me. Before we get into the exhibition, please tell us about the life of Carrie Mae Weems. Well, Carrie Mae Weems, as, as you kind of pointed out already, is an internationally known artist, photographer, installation artist, one who's worked with different concepts around societal issues, uh, particularly issues around race, around gender, around oppression, all things, you know, of kind of human value that often don't get teased out historically through images. And oftentimes she uses images and concepts that we're all familiar with, and she kind of transforms them into an opportunity for us to dialogue about larger social issues. And so the exhibition that we have on exhibit at the Georgia Museum of Art highlights this. It, the artist lives and works in Syracuse, but was originally from Portland, Oregon, and has kind of made, you know, was a, a former MacArthur genius, prestigious honor by many of our artists, you know, notable artists have had. And so she continues to work and work out, work through a lot of issues that are pertinent in our times and definitely police brutality, profiling, the violence that we all cannot ignore, of course. She's dealt with that, particularly as it regards race and African-Americans. Shania, something I read that just fascinated me about Carrie Mae Weems before she got her MacArthur, although it points to why she was awarded one. 
she was trained as both a dancer and photographer before she enrolled in the folklore studies program at Berkeley at the University of California. And she became interested in observation methods that are used in the social sciences. So she takes us as viewers into a realm with her art that really is focusing on behavior. In this instance, horrific behavior because of the ubiquity of fatal shootings, of crimes against African Americans, and in turn perceptions of black people as criminal. Would you describe the photos in The Usual Suspects and if you have any thoughts about how her social scientist perspective informs her art? I mean, it's interesting that you brought up that background because I always think about, you know, the expression textbook definitions or that something is connected to a textbook. And, you know, I always think about my own, you know, my own schooling, like everything that we learned in social studies, you know, remember the social studies class, you know, you have these captioned images of different societies and different behaviors that people engage in from different groups. And I think that Weems is kind of teasing out that interaction between visual imagery and how we understand and perceive, you know, groups of people or individuals, you know, based on these kind of what I call the textbook image or the textbook definition that we, that's communicated to us. And then we translate into our own minds and we believe without often getting all of the details and all the facts about individual situations. Much of the the work in the exhibition, it's not, you know, voluminous and photography in the sense of, you know, like traditional photography as we would make it. Most of the images were kind of enlarged images that are uh, kind of screen printed and, you know, that are based on photographs of kind of shadowy images of what we believe. And again, it's, it's about our perception of hooded black males. You know, I talked to a group not too long ago and I said, well, how do we know that they're males? How do we know that they're black males? We just assume that based on other information that we've received visually, maybe through the news and so forth, but these shrouded figures that at some times we are a little bit more visible, maybe their facial features, other times not so much. So is it the manipulation of the kind of bluish gray photographic image that we're responding to and that we perceive that these are black males or if in fact they really are. So there's a lot of interplay between what we perceive, you know, based on, you know, memory, based on perceptions that we've received from previous images and what is real. So we don't know the identity of the individual, do we connect it with something else that's in our memory bank or something else that we've seen? And oftentimes that informs our decisions. You know, the decisions that are made, you know, for example, in the case of different law enforcement, it's based on what they see or what they think that they see based on a, a number of factors, um, including bias. If in the case of those individual um, law enforcement officers are affected by previous cases of bias. So I think that that's really what you see as you go through the exhibition. In other instances, you know, you have images of these kind of shrouded figures that have these blocks of, of you know, color across their mouths or in, in specifically a red box across or kind of a maroon colored box across their mouths, which means that in, in a sense, symbolically they're silenced. And so we really never get, in a sense, from these images, the full story. And I think that's a lot of what Weems is trying to communicate is, we don't always get the full story. We don't all, I mean, these things, these violent acts often happen in a split second or in the case of a few seconds of time and not an opportunity to get the full story 
before something tragic occurs. And so I think there's a lot of visual tricks that the, or not, not necessarily tricks, but kind of manipulation that the artist is able to use through the kind of enlarged photographic images and also through a very moving film that it also accompanies the exhibition to kind of get us to think about the relative speed at which violent acts happen, the processing, the mental processing that oftentimes is inaccurate and that leads to tragic consequences. That would be the video, People of the Darker Hue. Yes, yes. And that's kind of the centerpiece of the exhibition, actually. And the other works that I just mentioned pretty much surround that central work in the exhibition. We have kind of in our galleries, like an enlarged uh, projection of the film. And it kind of starts out with, you know, the, the blues, you know, kind of playing in the background and images of people walking and moving through the world, people of different backgrounds, of different appearances. And as it progresses, you know, we begin to see images that kind of point to race and racial differentiation. And then, you know, from her past work, but also bringing us into the imagery of the exhibition that relates to violent acts that have occurred. There's one kind of continuing vignette of a Black male, well, there's there's a few figures that are um, pictured, but this kind of image of a Black male walking on a treadmill, you know, or running on a treadmill in various states of, you know, emotion, you know, sometimes with a joyful expression, sometimes with a very serious expression. And then in the background, there are clouds that, you know, one side, the clouds move. And then this kind of iconic clock that is above his head in a tree that is kind of fruitless and leafless that's in the background. And so these images that surround this figure that's like on a treadmill, supposedly running, and these, that image of a Black male running is very kind of almost an iconic image of running away from something. I mean, we, we can date back to the slave advertisements of showing the figure with the knapsack on their back kind of running away, you know, that, that notion of the runaway, you know, I mean, and all that connotation. But he doesn't seem to be getting anywhere because he's moving, but he's moving on a treadmill. So he's kind of still in one, you know, not moving into any particular, to any particular place. And so, you know, it kind of gives you the thought of like, you know, even though this figure is running, is it fruitless? Because it's going to be the same, you know, the, the exact same result. And some of those results are seen in other parts of, uh, of the film or the video, I should say. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the Georgia Museum of Art curator Shania Harris about an exhibition of photos by Carrie Mae Weems, The Usual Suspects. Some of the diptychs on display are photographs of the same person. The one on the left is the person turned toward the camera, and on the right side, they're in profile. Sean, is that supposed to symbolize a mugshot? Yes. In fact, several works actually will show, juxtapose a police report or suppose a police report of some sort, but it also documents the death of the individuals, like of real uh, individuals who were who were perhaps arrested, but also assaulted and murdered in the process. And visual descriptions of the way that they looked from their hair to what they were wearing. And so this whole idea of imposing a kind of sense of Black criminality by kind of suggesting the mugshot that, you know, these are quote unquote, the usual suspects. These individuals are presumed to be guilty even before their innocence can even possibly be proven because they're murdered before there is even a chance to have a trial. And so that kind of paradox is, you know, communicated by Weems through these police reports or these kind of quote unquote official reports. And then also through the body, as you suggested, 
the body positioning of the side profile, the front frontal profile, even as the figures are shrouded and we don't really know the identity of the ones pictured, but she reminisces on actual cases of people who have been murdered by, you know, state authority in the form of police. The Georgia Museum is accompanying the usual suspects with a companion exhibition you have curated titled Call and Response. Shania, please tell us about what you chose for this companion collection. So we had, it kind of also actually started out as a mini dilemma that many museums go through in the time of the pandemic, well, prior to the pandemic, we wanted to bring the exhibition to the University of Georgia and we contracted and it was great, you know, that we were still able to bring it to Athens, but we had some changes in our schedule. So the gallery that Call and Response is in we originally had another um, exhibition slated for it, but it was pushed forward into the future. And so I said, well, this might be a great opportunity for me to kind of have a companion exhibition using works from our collection to maybe tease out some themes that are apparent in Weems's exhibition or maybe perhaps not, but still related. And through the work of various African-American artists, that are in our Thompson collection, which is our core collection of African-American art, but also in, you know, other works that we have in our collection by Black artists. So it was something also that gave me an opportunity to work with, you know, our students. You know, we often have student curatorial interns, and my curatorial intern for the semester was, his name is Nathan Fleeson. He's a doctoral student in religion, and he was really intrigued both he and I were intrigued by this notion of grace and that is also communicated through Weems's exhibition in how do you find grace in, you know, even if you think of it in a kind of esoteric sense, in moments like these where there's just so much tragedy that goes on that we have to face through viewing the news and reading the paper or the internet and trying to find a, a moment of pause and reflection to think about the larger consequences of that are occurring in our society and how we want to be able to respond to that. So that's where the title came from, Call and Response. And so many of the objects that we chose, they of course have no direct relation to any of the cases that Weems is bringing up, but it does speak to kind of how artists of color have for for centuries and decades, try to communicate grace despite all of the kind of societal ills that they face, including violence. Hmm. So the works you chose to include in call and response really are in dialogue with Weems's images. Right. And so, like, for example, an artist that I you know, I've loved for years. He was, a, you know, probably one of, one of the more understated artists. Uh, his name was Hayward Oubre. We have a work by him that is called Startled Woman. And it's a work that I haven't brought out of the um, storage in a long time. And I, I, for some reason, when I went and took a look at it, I just immediately, it resonated for me with this exhibition because there's kind of a subtext in Weems's The Usual Suspect where she's kind of referencing kind of classical antiquity and Sophocles' Antigone and the story of a woman who's trying to bury her brothers in a dignified way and she gets no support from, you know, they've died violently, the hands of the state, they won't properly allow her to bury them and commemorate them. And much of Weems's exhibition is about commemoration and about thinking about the victims and the lives that have been lost. And the startled woman, you know, it's this wire structure or wire sculptural figure. It kind of resonated with me in this idea of those that are left behind. The startled woman who is, I mean, we don't know why Ubri portrays a startled woman, but I thought about it in relation to Weems's work of 
that crippling fear, that crippling grief of those that are left behind to deal with the loss of a loved one so violently. And how, when you think of sculpture, you know, we often think of, you know, wire or metal to be kind of the armature or the understructure of a sculpture. And then we see all the other materials that develop around that armature. But with Ubri, the armature, if you will, or what we would think of armature is the sculpture. And so the idea of kind of a crippling fear and grief becoming the structure that you operate through on a continuous level in your life, that that's what you become, uh, was kind of intriguing to me when I thought about, for example, pulling out that work. And there are a lot of other works. There's a work by a sculptor named William Taylor that we were able to um, pull out that shows kind of almost like a, a mother and child figure, you know, with two children are waiting at a bus stop, apparently to be, to travel home, but they look so fatigued and so tired. And you often think of the lives of different individuals, like they're fatigued and tired from life. And to still have these kind of tragic things occur in what we would perceive as everyday life. Shania Harris is the curator of African-American and African diasporic art at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens. The exhibition, Carrie Mae Weems, The Usual Suspects, is on view through August 7th. You can learn more about the artist and this show on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Now, how about some inspiration for a day trip this summer? Coming up, we'll hear about the art compound known as Pasaquan, located just a couple hours south of our city. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Named by CNN, one of the 16 most intriguing things to see and do in the United States, the seven-acre art compound known as Pasuquan, truly a Georgia treasure. Located just east of Columbus, the art haven was created by the eccentric folk artist Eddie Owens Martin. Columbus State University is directly involved in the conservation and documentation of this artistic utopia. And back in March, I spoke with the director of Pasaquan. Michael McFalls. McFalls, who was also an art professor at Columbus State, began telling the story of Eddie Owens Martin, the creator of Pasuquan. He's a very complex character, to say the least. Eddie Owens Martin was uh, born in a small town just outside of Buena Vista, Georgia, called Glen Alta, Georgia, in 1908. He was born on the 4th of July. He often would claim that he was born at the stroke of midnight. <laughs> so he just, and he'd often in, introduce himself that way. Mm. My name's Eddie Owens Martin. 
I was born in 1908 on the 4th of July at midnight, you know, and right then you kind of get the sense of who this character was. But at the age of 14, Eddie Owens Martin hitchhikes to New York City. He's living in New York during the Roaring Twenties. He's a hustler. He's working in gay nightclubs. He's going even into the bar scene. He's running, running an illegal gambling ring. And at the same time, he's actually creating art. And in fact, in the archives here at Columbus State, we have early pieces of Eddie's that he made while he was in New York City. But while he's in New York, he begins to go to the galleries and the libraries in New York City. And he's, he's kind of teaching himself because he only has an eighth grade education. He's self-taught, but he's very interested in the cultural scene. And what ends up happening is that starts impacting the work that you see at Passaquan. But, you know, that's kind of the beginning. But I will say what ends up happening is in 1935, roughly, he has a vision. He claims that these beings that had arms the size of watermelon, I love that description. This is from the Tom Patterson book, In the Land of Passaquan. So this being has arms the size of watermelon came to him and told him to change his ways, or this was the end of the road for him. And at that point, he becomes the, you know, first, and as far as I know, only Passacoyan. And he starts making work about this kind of pseudo-religion that he develops called Passacoyanism. And he starts reading tea leaves on 42nd Street to make ends meet. And that's the beginning of Passacoyan. How did he come up with the name Passaquan? Yeah, there's a couple stories about that. But one of them is that Eddie Martin thought that Passaquan was a word that kind of merged different cultures, right? Passa from uh, Mesoamerican culture. And he even said Quan was from Eastern Asian cultures. And he merged these two names together. So if, if you ever go to Passaquan, you will see that Pasaquan, and, and I love this quote from Tom Patterson's book in the land of Pasaquan as well, is, is a mock pre-Columbian psychedelic wonderland. <laughs> it's a place where all cultures and all races and all creeds are kind of merged together in this, this place that kind of celebrates these cultures, right? And so I think in his mind that word Pasaquan kind of uh, merges these disparate cultures in one place. So you describe some pretty important influences there from various cultures. If someone walked onto the Pasoquan property for the first time, what would they see? Well, when you enter Pasoquan, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's deep in the heart of the Pines and Marion County, and you know, just about south southeast of Columbus about 30 minutes, 30 minutes drive, but you're, you really feel like you're, there's nothing else there. I mean, in fact, all the land around it is hundreds of acres of pine trees. And then it kind of just emerges off this road. And when you drive up, you will see two large set of eyes looking at you. <laughs> they're, they're on the side of this kiva. And then you turn to the right, you see the kind of front gates of Pasaquam, which are these totem-like figures that stand about seven, eight, eight feet tall, and then walls, large walls that you can't see over again. They're about six, seven feet tall uh, that kind of run the, the property. And, and there are a lot of um, references, again, to um, especially Mesoamerican and Native American cultures. There's a lot of iconography that's, and, and symbols that are, are kind of appropriated from those cultures. But in many ways, I think Eddie's taking some of these images and in his mind, he's celebrating them. I read that he changed his name to Saint Ohm. Yes, and that's a great point. And I, I didn't bring that up. When Eddie had his vision, he changed his name from Eddie Owens Martin to Saint Ohm, but he spells it E-O-M, but he pronounced it Ohm. So the EOM is obviously his initials, Eddie Owens Martin. And again, if you're in the Columbus State Archives in the library, you'll, you can go through some old drawings of Eddie's and you'll see that he, 
initially assigning them Eddie Owens Martin or just EOM. And then all of a sudden, around that 1935 period, you begin to see that he starts signing them, you know, Saint Ohm. And from there on out, he's signing his work, Saint Ohm. What is the connection between Edward Churchward's books about the lost continent of Mew? Am I saying it right? Is it? Yeah, Mew? that's that's correct. It's the uh, the lost continent of Mew, and it's Edward Churchward's. This Eddie Martin is very interested in this book. I think you have to kind of imagine he's living in New York City. He's self-educating. He's interested in kind of pseudoscience. He's interested in the occult. He's interested in, you know, he's going to these museums and libraries and he, he runs across this book and he's reading this book. And the book really is, it's almost an Atlantis story about the South Pacific. It's this idea of where everything, all, all origins and all races and all cultures, it's, a, it's an origin story for the world or for humankind. When you go into it, it talks about all these archetypes that you find in different cultures. And, and so Eddie is highly interested in this book and you begin to see those influences on the designs at Passaquan, to say the least. I mean, you, you can see that almost in some rooms, they feel like this lost continent immune. Eddie believes that the Passaquans are beings, gender fluid beings from the future that come to him and, and tell him he needs to build this place because Passaquan is a place where all religions, all cultures, all races, all sexes kind of live in harmony. He's building his own utopia in Southwest Georgia. Passaquan shares some aspects of Howard Finster's Paradise Garden in the way that both founders created this magical place to showcase their artwork for others and spirituality informs their art. But I think you're pointing to something very different in their beliefs when you explain Eddie Owens Martin's worldview. Yeah, to say the least, Eddie knew Howard. I think that's an interesting story there that they were aware of each other. They're both self-taught artists who are making art environments in Georgia. They were in an exhibition called Missing Pieces. They actually flew up to DC together. There's a great story told by Howard and Eddie about this encounter where they're sitting next to each other, flying up to DC. And it's, a, it's kind of a, you know, it's funny because their interpretation of that experience is different from one another. But, you know, Eddie, I think, compared to Howard, I, I mean, I think that people were ready maybe for Howard Finstner and his, his ideas about, you know, Jesus and Coca-Cola. I don't think people were ready in the 80s and the 70s for this idea of gender fluid beings from the future. Um, I think Eddie was ahead of his time. In fact, I'd say Howard and Eddie both were ahead of their time, but Eddie was ahead of his time. And I believe now, and the students at Columbus State, when we're talking about it, are realizing that here's this guy in 1957, he comes down from New York, he starts building this place called Passaquan. It's this place where in Southwest Georgia where all races can live in harmony, where sexuality, whether you're you know, gay or, or transgender or, or not, they, they can all live in harmony together. And, and these are really progressive ideas and, and still fairly progressive ideas. And I think that is pretty important to Eddie. And, and I often say that when, when I'm giving tours, that this, this man was ahead of his time. Oh my goodness, in the late 1950s, this yeah. was revolutionary thinking. Yeah. Michael, how did Columbus State University become involved with the property? When Eddie died in 1986, and maybe I should call him Sainom, when Sainom dies in 1986, he wills the property to the Buena Vista Garden Club, basically, and they convene together and they Eventually, it becomes what we, we now call the Pasaguan Preservation Society. 
Fred Fussell, Kathy Fussell, and, and, and many other individuals who lived in Buena Vista and Columbus make it up this society and make sure it's preserved. But it is a seven acre site and it was very difficult for this group to continue to keep Passaquan in good working order. And, and it slowly over time began to deteriorate. And, and in around 2014, I believe it was Fred Fossil wrote a letter to the Kohler Foundation and asked the Kohler Foundation to help them with the preservation efforts at Passaquan. And, and it was Ruth Kohler's kind of passion to do this. She saw the value in sites like Passaquan and even places like Paradise Gardens. So what is the role of Columbus State students and alumni in helping to restore the buildings and artwork? That's a great question because it's an important part of our curriculum at this point. But once the Kohler Foundation decided they were going to do this restoration, and it was a multi-million dollar restoration of the site. Kohler, Fred Fussell, and the former director of the Kohler Foundation, Terry Yoho, reached out to the past president of the university and approached them to see if they would be interested in this collaboration. You know, and he was, the, the president said, yes, we're interested in it. Let's get the art department to be engaged in it. And and one day he came to our department meeting at Columbus State University. I was sitting in there and he basically said, who wants to do this? And I kind of became the de facto volunteer and I've fallen in love with the site since. I, I saw the value then. I've always had an interest in self-taught visionary art. And this site alone is probably one of the more important sites in America. And so... Yeah, I, I saw the value of that connected to our curriculum. So at that point, we began having students, in fact, our caretaker that lives out there now, it was a former student of mine, working on the site directly with these professionals in the field. So with Parma Conservation and International Artifacts. And they worked with that group for two and a half years. They finished the preservation work out there around 2016, little, midway through 2016. And after that, the university took ownership of it. Since then, we have students working out there as docents. We have students interning with the, the university archives, where we archive thousands of drawings and objects and clothing and things like that that Eddie Martin created. Students develop exhibitions that are both on a national scale and also locally of the work. So, you know, one of our missions right away as a university was to begin to tell Eddie's story and make sure that people realize the value of this work. And so students are really a key component of that. For example, right now we have um, a student in chemistry and a group of students painting, and we're, we're beginning the second restoration process of the paint because we've had what we call secondary efflorescence on the surface of some of the paint, and we're working with chemistry students to solve that problem, and they're shipping off some of the samples that we're making to Auburn, and Auburn is testing these samples for us, and we're coming up with a solution to this problem. So a place like Passaquan is continually in flux and we're constantly, you know, in this restoration stage. And so much rich experience for students. Yes, to say the least, it's a, you know, it's experiential learning site. The other thing we do out there, which is kind of interesting, is we bring in what we call resident artists. So we bring in artists that are inspired by the site and make art in response to the site. So those artists might come to Pasquan, but it even maybe come to Columbus State University and give lectures about their work. So the art department is constantly kind of engaged with this site throughout uh, an academic year. Michael McFalls is a professor of art at Columbus State University and director of Pasquan. The art compound is open to the public on weekends, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights.
Nights. Coming up, the next installment in our local series, Film Crew Files. Today, featuring director of photography, Alexis Jackson. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. It's time now for our series, Film Crew Files, where we hear from some of the many Atlantans that help keep our city's film industry thriving. My name is Alexis Jackson. I live in Old Fort Ford. And I have worked in the film industry in some capacity since 2007. Wow, so 15 years. That's crazy. Um, And then specifically as a director of photography for about seven to eight years. I have been interested in stories and wanting to be a storyteller since I was very, very small. I was a voracious reader when I was younger and also a consumer of visual media, film, et cetera. And I think that those things together are probably what really seeded that in me. And so as soon as I was old enough to form sentences, I was writing finger quote novels and I'm putting in quotes because of course there were novels written by a six-year-old, but I would write novels and I would make my family members read them. And when I would play with toys, I always wanted it to be a TV show or a soap opera or some long running story where there were specific characters that carried over, you know, throughout. And then ultimately that storytelling urge within me led me to film, particularly through my love of music videos, which I used to watch constantly on you know, MTV, BT, VH1, etc. And so when I was a kid, I was like, that's what I want to do when I get older. I want to make music videos, uh, you know, and so that was sort of the emphasis for me wanting to go to film school later in life. And I stuck with it. Of course, by the time I graduated from film school, music videos and, you know, the music industry as a whole had changed significantly. So making a living as a music video director was not quite the realistic dream that it was when I was a child. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, throughout film school, I found myself saying often that I wanted to be a music video director and a cinematographer. And so that stuck with me. I took a little bit of a roundabout way after film school, but ultimately found my way back to what what I said that I wanted to do. You know, I don't really have a normal day per se. And I think that that's one of the things that I love the most about my career or the thing that fits my personality in a lot of ways because I think I would get bored if I was doing the same thing day in day out you know it's always something new it's solving similar problems but in a different scenario in a different way and so depending on whether I'm in pre-production or production or post whether I'm the director of photography on a project or if I'm camera operating for another DP which I do also do occasionally I could be doing something entirely different on a different day so for example if I'm in pre-production for a narrative film and I'm the director of photography that might look like having meetings with the director or producer you know in person or via zoom talking about the visual aesthetic that we're ultimately going for that could be looking at photography references or music references that fit a certain mood that the director is going for or watching a film that the director says oh I loved the vibe of this or I kind of want it to look like this and if it's a movie that I haven't seen before even if I have seen it before just to refresh my memory maybe I'm watching a movie to um, prepare or sort of get into the mindset of what we're doing for this particular film so that could be a normal workday for me in pre-production. I could also during pre-production, I could be testing lenses or doing research on lenses or research on filters that I want to use. During production, I'll be on set. We definitely work some long, long hours, but you know, that could be on location in Kansas, or it could be a studio set in Los Angeles or New York. And like I said, ultimately, it's sort of 
taking solutions that I've already worked through and applying them to new scenarios, kind of extrapolating that into whatever is needed at that time. But like I said, there's always some variety. Those are all (laughs) parts of a normal day for me. I love creating beautiful images and playing with light or camera movement to create beautiful images, but also to ultimately serve the story and use that as a storytelling device. I would say that's really my favorite part. I often say that I feel that being a director of photography is sort of a marriage of the technical and the creative or using the technical knowledge that you have about lighting, about camera bodies, about all of the the technical aspects of filmmaking and then taking that and using that knowledge to ultimately tell a story because those two things are important. There are so many things that are unique to our particular medium of visual imagery that we have these devices that we can use to tell a story that don't exist in other mediums you know for example with books i love books and they can be super descriptive and they can help you imagine this world that the author is creating but you don't get that ability to throw light on a specific thing that you want the viewer to look at or do a rack focus from the foreground to the background to show that something's important or to subtly shift the light maybe and make it a little bit darker at a key plot moment within the film to influence the way that the audience feels or let them know that something has changed watching other people watch it after it's finished and seeing them laugh at a moment or gasp at a moment or you know tear up during a moment it shows that we've used those storytelling devices effectively and particularly if it you know was a story that I was invested in which I tend to only work on stories that I'm invested in knowing that those things that we sort of imagined and envisioned and took from a script to being on screen and we did it effectively and made the audience feel this emotion that we were going for. I would say that that's probably my my most favorite part of what I do. I would say that the hardest part of my job, and I love what I do, but I would say that the hardest part of my job is probably the long hours and the film industry I think is particularly known for having long hours and sometimes that can be a strain on relationships friendships also your other hobbies you know things that you enjoy doing outside of work that you may not have as much time to do because you're just trying to sleep and do it all over again the next day I would say particularly for relationships with people or friendships with people, family relationships with people that don't work in the film industry and sometimes don't understand that our inability to tell you when we're available for something or what time we're going to get off is not in any way indicative of how we feel about the relationship or how important you are to us. It's just sometimes our schedule is so crazy that we just you know, we're just sort of swept up in the tide of it and we don't know exactly where we're going to land on shore. (laughs) So, so yeah, like I said, I love what I do, but sometimes it can be hard to work as much as we do and be away from the people that we love. And sometimes we don't get nearly enough sleep. My favorite production that I've worked on in terms of the one that was probably most important to my career thus far is the the short film that I was the director of photography on for Vogue magazine called Why the Sun and Moon Live in the Sky featuring uh, Chloe and Hallie and the the short film lives on the Vogue website and they also pulled stills from the film and put them in the March 2021 issue of the magazine so I got a photo credit in Vogue which was pretty awesome And I'm really happy with that work because I feel like it looks really pretty. Also, it meant a lot to me to do that work for such an esteemed publication. Another piece that I did that wasn't necessarily like the biggest production that I've done, but I felt like the subject matter was really important and I really enjoyed working on it was a a short film that I did called Spin that without, I don't wanna spoil it, it's actually starting its festival run soon, but it relates to when certain boundaries are crossed in the context of a relationship. I love working on stories that I feel like are really powerful or inspire difficult conversations because I feel like that's also a really important part of art and of media. I actually moved to Atlanta from Detroit 
particularly because I was getting hired for like industry stuff down here and I just simply don't believe that I would be where I am currently in terms of what I feel like I've accomplished or the career strides that I've made if I had not moved to Atlanta. The people are just unmatched than the community that they've fostered. Also, I am an adjunct professor at Spelman College where I teach cinematography. And being at Spelman, which, you know, for anyone who's not familiar, is an all-women HBCU. And being there with other, you know, like young Black women filmmakers. And again, this is something that is specific to to Atlanta. Uh, You know, being able to work with creatives that, you know, look like me and have been historically excluded from making the same strides in the industry you know, all of those things are, are really important to me from a career standpoint. And those are all things that I would not have accomplished without being in the city of Atlanta. Director of Photography, Alexis Jackson, and our series Film Crew Files. More information about Jackson and her work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., curator DeLeon Blakely and artist Melody Thomas detail the community undertaking known as the 44 Murals Project. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.